You've prided yourself in the past on the team being tough and physical. Is it disappointing that it went away in the biggest stage on the biggest stage? Last season ended and I cried openly like a baby. Both of those dudes need to get in the weight room. I'm very disappointed in Jared Allen. The way we turned on my beloved Jared, it drove me crazy. Hardaway Jr., are you insane? I need a team who can board, will rebound the ball, whose shooting won't consist of making nothing at all. But now we are back, new weapons in tow. So could all Stop trying to trade off the pro. Media days here. Cavaliers are back. I still hate the Knicks. Scotty Bonds is trash. Max and George and Ty added to our core. But if you still want to trade Jared, show yourself the door. Uh, I did the smart thing after the playoffs and I deleted my social media apps. I hope you feel good about yourself, you scumbags. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast, the 2023 launch. Media Day's here, and the Fear the Fro podcast is back, season three. Thank you for joining me, Bob Schmidt, your lifelong Cavs fan host and uh, voice of Fox Sports Radio, blah, blah, blah. Most of you probably know the details by now, but if you don't, welcome to the podcast. Hopefully, you will stay a while. Now, this was a hell of a summer, especially for those of us who carry water for a certain franchise all-star center former All-Star Center, and Jared Allen, it was rough. We don't need to rehash the whole thing. Disappointing postseason. The offense stalled out. The defense, while good, was terrible at preventing second-chance points. And an even, I guess you would almost say, equally anemic offense in the New York Knicks in the postseason somehow pulled out a victory due primarily to second chances. Now, today was media day. And as you'll hear today, there were a lot of questions aimed at JB, at Kobe, at Jared Allen, all about the toughness of the team. What can they do to address the toughness? What lessons did you learn? Now, poor Jared Allen. I hope those of you, clearly, the song at the beginning should illustrate my feelings here. Now, I like to think my podcast audience is more reasonable. More restraint is shown. But watching people sit there and propose asinine Jared Allen trades, was it was driving me insane. Tim Hardaway Jr., a guy... North of 30 years old, making way too much money, playing a marginal role in Dallas, not to mention his injury issues. Doug McDermott, a man who can't stay on the floor in San Antonio and is old in his own right, being suggested as the centerpiece for deals for Jared Allen because we want shooting. Well, now here we are. Struess, Nyang, Mitchell, Garland. The nice thing, at Levert coming off a career year, the nice thing is the guys that are returning – simply can't shoot as bad as they did in the first round. A knock on wood. I don't think they can. And we added two more gunners to it. And look at the front court. I think, and I'm not even just talking about Allen and Mobley, with the addition of Thompson, with the addition of Damian Jones, you have to feel that that's a vast improvement to Robin Lopez and Mamadi Diakite, who I liked, but sorry, Mamadi. So reporters wasted no time asking the bigs how all the negativity impacted them. I'm sure you've seen the quote, if you didn't hear the audio itself, about Jared Allen saying that he deleted his social media apps. That question came from Evan Damrell. And here it is. I'll just play it for you. People have been dogging you on social media. Do you have any comment on that at all, or you just ignore that outside noise? Uh, I did the smart thing after the playoffs, and I deleted my social media apps. People can clown people on deleting the apps, but I think that was a smart thing to do on my part. And honestly, not, not really. I mean... 
honest, if I was in their boat, I'd probably do the same thing. You know, there's a lot of things you can say on on social media, so I don't blame them. But nothing to say back to them. No. Look at that high road. Possibly the nicest big man in the NBA. I hope you're happy, Jared Allen haters. You're taking a sweet, childlike man and destroying the internet for him. Dare I say, the problem here isn't Jared Allen's playoff performance. It's your short, ungrateful memory. Sacrificing one half of the league's best interior defense, it's a full 180 when a mere pivot is what should be introduced first. If you're having a dry spell, maybe you've gone without the touch of a woman for far too long, or a guy, whatever your preference is. What do you do? Maybe you get a haircut, buy some new clothes. Reasonable measures to improve your chances. You don't do the following. You're out there gallivanting about town trying to get strange. Trying to put the tip of your trade penis in anything that you can. Oh, look at this. The Dallas Mavericks have reached out and they said I can do whatever I want with their roster. Tim Hardaway Jr., Reggie Bullock, I don't even have to try. Path of least resistance. Ill-conceived trade idea? Let me at it. Let me get some of those sweet, sweet trade cookies. I made you some cookies. Did you bring me my drinks? But hold on a second. That should be a warning. But you're just going to plow ahead. What, were you born yesterday? Thank God there's one man standing in the way preventing you from doing something very, very stupid. Kobe fucking Altman. Voice of reason. What are you doing? Making a mistake. Making a mistake. You're goddamn right. Kobe Altman isn't going to allow you to make that mistake. Now, he might make a mistake of his own, but it's a one-time thing. Won't happen again. So you get a second chance here, despite the fact that you had already taken all your clothes off and were butt naked in the living room that is NBA trade talk, trading Jared Allen. You want to explain yourself? Grab that towel right there, please. Grab it. Please sit in that stool. That's right. Sit down, listen to this podcast, sheath that trade penis because Jared Allen is going nowhere. Now, who knows? In a year from now, will we be back in that same place? Maybe, but I don't think so. But it is worth pointing out that on To Catch a Predator, there is a guy who's on the show twice. It's absolutely mind-blowing. But anyway, I do realize that Alan's name wasn't simply brought up because of his play. It was also because of our cap situation. We didn't have big salaries on the books. And now we have 20 million Jared Allen. We have 16 million Max Struess. We have 8 million from George Yang. And whatever Okoro eventually gets extended for. Not to mention mid-level exceptions. Another first-round draft pick next year. This is going to be a much fuller, more robust lineup before Donovan Mitchell has the chance to leave. And you have to feel great about that. God forbid if Imani Bates pans out, huge. So we started on a bit of a negative. Let's just hit all the negative subjects that came up at Media Day we needed addressed right at once. Kobe Altman. Not much time was spent on his DUI. The first couple, he made a statement, and then there was one question from Fedor. I'll give you both of them back to back here. Um, before we dive into uh, today's activities, um, I, I do want to address a personal matter uh, with an incident that happened with me a few weeks ago. Um, I feel awful about the distraction that this incident has caused our organization and team. I've had several uh, conversations across the building with players, coaches, and ownership on down and have expressed that same sentiment to them as well. 
I understand uh, some of you may have some follow-up questions regarding this. I can't go into further detail or answer any questions as this is an ongoing legal matter. Fedor did press him. Kobe, are you anticipating any sort of disciplinary Oh, that was Jason Lord, my apologies. So, like I said, I, I'm not going to go into specifics or details um, regarding uh, the incident. Um, I have had several conversations um, internally, and we're going to keep those private for now. I feel like Kobe Altman largely escaped a lot of attention for this, probably because of all the chaos happening this offseason between the player movement with Lillard and then Drew Holiday this past weekend. But really, before that, all the James Harden drama, all the drama that surrounded Kevin Porter Jr. and that incident, a lot of talk right then about, oh, Kobe Altman saw the writing on the wall. He made the right decision and got rid of this legal criminal disaster. That was taking place and ironically on the heels of that came a bad decision in a legal scenario for Kobe Altman of his own but I would imagine if I had to guess what would happen here there's going to be some fine there may be some suspension of sorts but the nice thing if there is a silver lining first fortunately no one got hurt but secondarily in terms of its impact on the team better that it happened with a front office player than a key member of the actual roster because his work is largely done and outside of making some final roster decisions as we get out of training camp and head into the season, we can deal with whatever punitive measures the NBA takes with Kobe Altman. Now, shortly after that, he was questioned about Ricky Rubio, who we found out beforehand was not going to be in attendance at media day. And this is what he had to say about Ricky's absence and what we can expect long term with Rubio. Do you expect Ricky to play at all this season? So with Ricky, in regards to Ricky, um, just so everyone knows, his absence is excused um, as we speak right now. He's working to get himself right. Um, we give him um, that time and that runway to uh, get himself healthy. Uh, we support him from afar. And, and I think the thought process and hope is that he does return uh, to Cleveland and the Cavaliers and help us, helps us out this season. Uh, but we want to give him that time and that, that, that space to really get himself right. Now, that's a little more discouraging sounding than I had hoped for, specifically this section right here. And I think the thought process and hope is that he does return uh, to Cleveland and the Cavaliers and help us, helps us out this season. He said this season. He didn't say this year. The window is completely wide open from a month to the whole thing. I fully expected him to miss media day training camp most of the early part of the season, but I guess in my mind I figured there's a good chance he'll be back by the end of the calendar year. December, the Christmas games, the kind of unofficial start of the NBA season for a lot of people. But now, I don't know. I will say, though, one of the things, this is uh, my first hot take of sorts. I am a big Ty Jerome believer. Uh, I know there's a, a large contingent of Craig Porter Jr. believers. I personally think Ty Jerome is ready to step in, and we may be able to get more reliable backup point guard minutes from him than even Rubio. I don't think Rubio will return to form, personally. Not by the time that this contract is up. And who knows if he's even back this season based on the news that we received today. But Ty Jerome has the size, a couple of very solid three-point shooting seasons back as a 23-year-old. He was getting five three-point attempts a game and knocking down 42% from outside the arc. Last year, 39% on limited attempts. But still, this is a man who, over the course of his career, is 47% from the right coffin corner. 
He's got it within him. We talk about this free agent crop like we added two shooters, and I get it. The volume is much, much more with Nyang and with Struess, but Jerome has it in him. This will be my first bold-ish but possibly stupid take that I will later revisit. I think if he can just find his way onto the floor, we'll be clamoring for more Ty Jerome. And I think his size gives him a bigger window because he could conceivably play three positions. There's hypothetical lineups where he could play the three if necessary. I don't think those probably come into play without injuries, but still, I like the thought that he could. So yeah, I'm no longer optimistic Ricky is back by Christmas. It gives my man Ty Jerome a chance, though. Now, admittedly, we have a lot of mouths to feed. We still don't know what Isaac Okoro's role is going to be, and he's coming into a season where he's extension eligible. I was hoping for more comments from him today, but outside of showing up on an interview on the Chase Down Pod, kind of mean mugging behind Darius Garland and busting balls, he didn't actually get on the mic, though. I didn't hear any meaningful interview. He wasn't at the podium, so I don't know where his head is at. I know where his contract is at, and that's extension eligibility. I've heard numbers thrown around. Jared Vanderbilt re-signed for four for 48, and I've heard people use him as the barometer, a good defensive player who may not contribute a ton offensively, but people think that he helps lift the defense around him and do more than the numbers are indicative of. And you could make the same argument for Okoro. I would say this, though. I don't think you rush to extend Okoro. Now, I still wholeheartedly want to retain him, but I just think you don't bid against yourself. And I think the prudent move is to wait to see what his role is this year before you go and pay him based off his past seasons where he was logging 30 minutes a night. He is exactly the type of restricted free agent who won't have a large market begging to overpay him. And I think you just pay him what the market dictates. Now, there are those people who feel that the market will dictate exactly the type of deal that Vanderbilt got. I don't know. I think Vanderbilt's a little bit more valuable, me personally, especially in the context of that Lakers team. We just spent the entire summer signing guys and re-signing guys who probably are going to be siphoning minutes off of Isaac. Maybe I'm proven wrong. The numbers do keep escalating. However, I would hold out hoping that you can retain him for a contract closer to that of uh, George Nyang and $9 million a year, just shy of $10 million a year. I don't think he warrants a contract of $12 million a season. But again, contracts are going up every year. If we sit on it for another year, maybe that's par for the course. However, I do think we have the benefit of leverage in restricted free agency and that we should ride it out because we don't even know what Okoro's role is going to be long term. Now, if he wants to extend at a rate that's comparable with a backup, like in Yang, if he wants four for 32, then fine, ink it early. But don't pay him based off of his previous role when it looks like, based on this roster, he's going to be used in a much more limited capacity moving forward. Extending him now seems foolish. I absolutely want to keep his salary and keep him on the books for the purposes of future trades, but whatever that figure is, I think we should make him earn it. I mean, as a rookie, he was logging 30-plus minutes a night. That will not probably be what we see from him this season. There's not going to be this market begging to overpay him if he's barely playing on our roster. However, he clearly has use to us. He clearly has age on his side. He could take a big leap. I just think it's more prudent for us to wait and then extend him 
possibly after the market dries up and restricted free agency next year. I think it's a good business decision on a roster that's going to be very expensive as we move along. Boston is going to have this issue. They're going to have to make some hard decisions. We can get out ahead of it here and not not make a foolish early extension when it's not necessary, when we have leverage. Now, let's hit on the last kind of negative theme that just kept recurring during media day, and that was people questioning the Cavs about how they plan to correct their lack of toughness. Let's hit the highlights. First, Kobe Altman brought up unprovoked one of the things Evan Mobley is doing. Evan Mobley's 22 years old, right? We always have to remember that. Um, But at 22, uh, when you invest in your own personal gym at your home, that's a big deal. That's understanding what I have to do to get better physically. So Evan built a gym, and of course, he was then questioned because he looks a little bulkier. Darius Garland looks a little bulkier. Evan said to have gained some muscle. How much? Well, I'll let him answer. Last season playing weight was probably around 215. Uh, it would fluctuate up and down. Um, right now, I'm like 222-ish. Um, so I feel like I gained about like seven pounds of muscle um, throughout this whole process, and I'm still working as well um, through, through the season as well. So. Seven pounds, that's substantial. And if it happens to be in the lower body, he can hold his position a little bit better. And and at that stage, for him to, he talked about what he eats, a lot more pasta, a lot more steaks. He's got a, a chef now, so he's putting the time in. Uh, and, and you can't question, uh, people question that about Jared Allen. It's very obvious because he's such a private guy and because he's not out here posting videos of things. And personally, I've always felt like he's kind of conflicted. Yes, he wants to be strong, but... He also has been tasked at times with stretching out more towards the perimeter, and his mobility is one of the reasons he's such a great defensive big. It's not, he's not getting by on strength and power. It would be nice if he could maintain his speed and still have the strength, but that's a delicate balance to strike. And I thought Jared Allen had a particularly interesting comment when he was asked about how to change the narrative that they're not tough. In this league, everybody's going to have a narrative, you know, and the, not the sad part about it, the realistic part about it is that narrative is going to follow you around until you do something drastic to change it. And so unless I feel like we want to change that, we're going to have to do something drastic to get rid of the toughness, to get rid of the physical narrative. So it doesn't bother me. It is what it is. That sounds like foreshadowing for a potential decapitation of Joel Embiid later in the season where Jared Allen can do something incredibly dirty, turn towards the camera, eyeball it, and just say, Am I tough enough for you now? See, new effects. New season, new bullshit. JB also seemed to have had enough of that question and responded about the suggestion that the Cavs weren't tough enough. You've prided yourself in the past on the team being tough and physical. Is it disappointing that it went away in the biggest sta- on the biggest stage? it's funny to me because, you know... Not funny to him. We're making the point as if our guys aren't tough, right? And I don't believe that. Um, Our guys are physically and mentally tough. You don't become the number one defensive team in the league and not be physically and mentally tough, right? That just doesn't happen. So, um, you know, I think, again, there was a moment where we were overpowered by size and strength. Um, you know, those are things at some point we can control, um, but it's not a matter of our guys not being tough. And that needs to be made very clear at this moment. 
So more of the same, most of media day. Uh, that and the other question you see framed a lot is, what do you consider a success? Was last season successful? This is a very popular question amongst NBA reporters now. But the other subject of interest was, of course, Donovan Mitchell. Now, it's going to get worse and worse as we get closer to 2025. But when the Cavs acquired Donovan Mitchell last September, he has three years left on his contract before he could opt out. We have used one of those. Some people would say that it was somehow a failure because we failed in the postseason. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's any kind of absolute certainty that he will be on the Cavs in three seasons. However, way too premature to make that call. Now, he was questioned about why or if he will sign an extension two different times. Fedor circled back, did an excellent job pressing him, and he had this to say, Hey, Donovan, just to be clear, will you not sign an extension with the Cavs before opening night? Have you made that clear to the yeah, front office? No, it'd be, you know, if I were to, it'd be, it'd be next summer. Okay. Is yeah. that a financial decision? No, it's more so, like I said, just for me, um, going off of what we, we did last year, that's my primary focus is this, just trying to go out there and trying to be, you know, the best team we can be and bring a championship to the city and then go from there. And I've addressed this with Kobe and everybody over there. You know, this, I can still do it. Can still sign this extension, and um, I'm excited for what we got going forward. He will not be extending early. Now, it makes sense because he can get more money if he waits, including extra years. But he did confirm that, no, he will not sign an extension. So don't expect this story to go away anytime soon because some people will seize on that as some sort of validation that he will not be on the Cavs long term. Let's go back to back here. This is Darius Garland and his comments on the situation. Darius, you mentioned the, the time that you spent with Donovan this offseason and the conversations that you've had with him. There's a lot of talk about his future with the Cavs. There's going to be talk about his future with the Cavs. What's your view of his commitment level to this franchise? He's wearing wine and gold on media day, so I think he's pretty committed. committed. Um, he's his own grown man. I'm not making any decisions for him. Um, we would love to have him at Cleveland, but he's going to make it the best decision for himself. Yeah, so I'm going to leave it up to him. It's a question and my answer. There's no reason to rush your decision on your future till you see what happens with this roster long-term, with the Knicks roster long-term, with the Heat's roster long-term, with the six, or whoever may be in the bidding for his services, the Nets perhaps. Uh, I will say, though, as it relates to Donovan Mitchell, let's just play a doomsday scenario. Let's say this season's a disappointment. We reach the final year before he can opt out, and the Cavs do have to sit, sit there and seriously consider, okay, do we pull the trigger on trading him, or do we take our chances that we could lose him for nothing? I think the obvious path at that point, if next season went very bad, and if the 2024 media day, he was even less committal about signing an ex extension and possibly pushing this all the way to unrestricted free agency without any type of deal in place, well then, yeah, you absolutely look at what your options are at that point. But I think it's been very encouraging. I thought there would be an overcorrection after the Gobert and Mitchell summer, that people would look at what we gave up. They would look at especially what Minnesota gave up and say, okay, even for a true superstar in his mid-20s, we can never give up that kind of package again. It's just too risky. And certainly, if Donovan Mitchell bails, we're going to regret having given up first-round picks in 2025, 2027, 2029. Those are, that's a tough pill to swallow 
if Donovan Mitchell isn't on the Cavs. But my point being, I'm getting off the course here. I thought that there would be a correction in the market. And yet, here we are looking at a 33-year-old, top dollar, Damian Lillard, with a fair amount of nagging injuries over the last few years, being traded for an absolute haul by the Portland Trailblazers. I love what that team did in bringing back Aiton, Robert Williams, Brogdon, first-round picks, pick swaps. They got an incredible package considering on a apples-to-apples level, Lillard and Donovan Mitchell might be equally impactful or at least close to equally impactful on the basketball court. But Mitchell also had the benefit of age, and I have to think that even in a scenario where the Cavs have to reevaluate where they're at in a couple seasons, if everything goes bad, I'm playing this doomsday scenario, there still will be a market of sorts for Donovan Mitchell. Optimal outcome is he's with the Cavs for a long time, and we have a lot of team success and great. But if it becomes apparent he's planning to depart, you just need to recoup something keep those dollars on the books in some form, hopefully from productive players who might not be at his level, but as a collective unit can fill a lot of what we'll lose if he departs. That I mean, those are conversations really for far in the future. I guess what I'm trying to say here is I was very encouraged by how much Drew Holiday fetched as an older you know guard with one year left on his deal and then what Damian Lillard was able to recoup as a 33-year-old. Donovan Mitchell is still very much going to be in the prime of his career when he reaches the season in which we will have to make the decision about rolling the dice that we can extend him or trading him if he refuses to sign an extension. So I think it's too soon to be worried. We're going to have one more round of being able to improve things with a 2024 first round draft pick because we weren't allowed to trade that. We'll have exceptions we can work with. We'll get to see what happens with Struess and Yang, and we'll have a lot more salary slots to play with. You have in the teens, you have Levert, you have Struess, you have potentially a Coro, depending on what he signs for. Or at the very worst, Yang and a Coro are going to be close to $10 million a season, that will give you a lot of iterations, a lot of flexibility, a lot of wiggle room that it's not all doom and gloom. There is still a scenario where even if the Cavs gave up an absolute haul and Mitchell leaves, they can recoup a lot of it because he's just a very desirable age. And if Lillard and Drew Holiday can recoup as much as they did from teams who are desperate to win now, we just have to hope there's a team desperate to win now if and when we reach that point. Now, one last thing I wanted to touch on on this podcast, and that is the new edition of Max Struess. There were questions as to what will happen with the starting lineup. Will Struess, and even though JB was non-committal today, Struess, in a question from Chris Manning, essentially answered very bluntly about who will be the starter at Small Ford, in his view. Chris Manning from SB Nation. Is your expectation to start? Yes. So there you go. I think we can essentially take him at his word. I think he was probably given some assurances. I have said in the past, anyone who goes back and listens to the Kevin Love buyout podcast will hear me talk about how much distaste I have for this premise that people will always say stuff like, like when Miami was pissed because Portland wouldn't just cave and give them Dame for the package that they were offering. They said, well, you treat your guy like this. Nobody's ever going to come there. And the common refrain from markets like Portland and Cleveland is, Free agents don't come here anyway. And that is largely how I feel when it comes to 
all these conversations about, well, we did right by Drummond and we did right by Tristan Thompson and we did right by Kevin Love. And, you know, this is good because it lets people know that you you treat people well. And I've always just brushed that off to people who are just more player friendly than I am. I'm generally, if you had to say, am I more team centric or player centric? Most times, yeah, I do come down on the team side, but some humble pie. Evan Damrell asked Max Struess about Kevin Love and if Kevin Love had been a person who talked to him when he was considering where he would go in free agency. And Struess offered this up, perhaps the first validation that, you know what, doing right by Kevin Love had ripple effects, which did, in fact, benefit the Cavs, even if we had to pay handsomely to reap those benefits. Uh, Kevin was one of the first people I called, and uh, he couldn't have been more... Um, positive about the city of Cleveland alone and, and the organization here. So, um, you know, I think if you guys are happy that I'm here, I, I think Kevin should get a big nod to that because he told me it was a no-brainer. He's like, Max, you're everything they need. You'll be a great fit. The guys are great. The, the organization's great. Um, so Kevin definitely talked very highly of it, and, um, you know, he, he hasn't steered me wrong once. So very, very appreciative for Kevin Love. Basically, off the bench, it's a certainty we're going to get a lot of Yang and a lot of Levert. But from there, Okoro, Dean Wade, Ty Jerome, what happens with the backup big minutes? Do we get Damian Jones? Do we end up just shifting Mobley over and barely using any of those guys, just playing stretch wings as the four? There's a lot of questions which we'll get to see the answers to. And I'm excited as we progress to see how these rotations shake out. Because again, I think we're going to find ourselves in a spot where we wish more guys played, but the rotation is a little bit tighter just for effectiveness sake. So will we see a continuance of the seasons we got out of Levert and Donovan Mitchell in the regular season last year? Or will we see some regression? How much will Mobley's increased muscle actually impact his use? They talked a lot today about how they want to put the ball in his hands more. And even Jared Allen talked about how he's working at being more efficient in the mid-range to open things up, working more on his passing, uh, getting the ball on the elbow, rather. It sounds like all of these guys have been tasked by the coaching staff to work on specific elements. Levert, with the chase down guys, talked about how he's working on movement shooting more. Because clearly, he took a huge leap in catch-and-shoot development since he's come to the Cavs, but now with an offense that appears to be shifting to a more motion-centric offense, less ISO-dominant, guys like Levert and Struess and Yang are going to be tasked with creating looks on the move, not just in kickout situations. And Jared Allen alluded to the idea that he feels like he's going to be pressed to guard out on the perimeter more when he was talking about, you know, not wanting to get too bulky to maintain his mobility because he's going to have to do more switching out on guys on on the outside. So a lot that will be fun to see. Now, just to touch on a couple of the other NBA stories, I already said I love the return for Portland, for them to do, and I love it just because, while I don't have anything against Miami, there's nothing worse than a fan base that's super entitled. And that's definitely the case here. Uh, They came in thinking that because Dame said that's where he wanted to go, that they could just offer up a gigantic pile of shit and that Portland would eventually just have to take it. And everybody was out there proclaiming, let me play you this clip from Dan Levitard. It is exceptionally satisfying when you find out that it happened literally a day 
before Dame Lillard was traded to the Milwaukee Bucks. Dan Lebetard, who resides in Miami, putting in the mouthpiece symbolizing his role for the Miami Heat organization and joking about how it's an inevitability that Dame Lillard will end up with the Heat. They will not overpay for Dame Lillard. So you do whatever you want, Toronto, <laughs> and you do whatever you want, Milwaukee, and you idiot Cronin in Portland, you should have gotten rid of him a long time ago. Before we all saw the Portland's not good enough to keep him. The Miami Heat are going to get Dame Lillard. Dan Levitard was back the next day to confirm what we all knew. Portland sent Damian Lillard not to Miami, but they sent him to a team that I thought was better than Miami before they got Damian Lillard. And there is something sweet about this. Not because, again, I don't care about Miami. I care about the mentality that small market teams should just give up their talent because poverty franchises, and this is the way of the world. So anytime a small market like Portland can finesse a situation like what we saw with Miami, I am always going to be on the side of that team, even if in this case it kind of fucks us because Damian Lillard is now with the Bucks and the Celtics got better as well with Drew Holiday. But still, a small price to pay for seeing this big market manifest destiny bullshit squelched. Just listen to Ethan Skolnick after this happened. Listen to the uh, attitude directed towards the Portland Trailblazers and how they conducted themselves from the Heat Insider. I don't want to hear any more about the anti-player empowerment movement because we just saw the Blazers completely fuck over their 11-year franchise icon. Did they, though? Or did they send him to a better situation? Why is it that some think that the contract should only apply to the players and the relationship should only apply to the players, the loyalty should only apply to the players, but it doesn't apply to the people who sign their checks? The Dame Lillard thing should never be forgotten, and no free agent should ever sign with that godforsaken franchise. Have a good night, everybody. First of all, powerful sign-off. But secondly, here's where I would disagree. Loyalty is irrelevant, so long as they honor the terms of the contract. Like when Dame was suggesting that he wouldn't show up if he was traded. That is not honoring the terms of the contract. Not to mention incredibly destructive towards the integrity of the league as a whole, which is why it drew a warning from Adam Silver. They can both be as disloyal to one another as they want, so long as they honor the terms of the contract. Where all the conflict has arisen is that Dame is trying to use his agent and back-channeling to circumvent... Essentially, the deal that he signed, when the avenue for him to do that was there for him to take, but he opted to go for the cash grab instead. Now, you can make the argument that he signed the contract under completely different pretenses, and deciding to keep Scoot essentially made liars of the Portland Trailblazers, and I'm sympathetic to that angle. But I would also say, in general, no team is built entirely around the career timeline of one singular diminishing asset. And I don't say that as a way to degrade Dame, but the reality is, chances are at 33, his best years are probably behind him, or soon will be. I don't think it's wrong to deliberate as to whether or not the best course of action is to continue to slap expensive band-aids on a leaky boat, or to just fix the boat correctly. The players say it, it's a business. The teams say it, it's a business. Well, we should start listening to that. And we can't apply selective outrage, but then not be offended at all when a player says, well, I don't want to be here anymore, regardless of my contract. That can't just be player empowerment. 
while a business looking out for its long-term best interests is disloyalty. It's a two-way street. Have a good night, everybody. This has been the Fear the Fro podcast. Thank you for listening. Please leave a rating or a view. I appreciate all of you. Back with more soon. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.